0: This episode is recorded on Jar Jar Country, and we want to pay our respects to the original creatives of this land and their elders, past, present, and future.
1: Welcome to another episode of Country Creatives.
0: I am Caleb. And I'm Reese. And this episode. Is pretty cool, isn't it, Reese?
1: It is. We are country creatives ourselves and we're interviewing another country creative who also happens to be our number one fan. Oh,
0: you strap in because Andre, the one and only country creatives first fan, is here telling his story. It's country creatives. He is such a country dude.
1: Yeah, his practice is inspired by the bush where he lives in Bendigo.
0: Which, Um, the way he paints it is just like, man, I want to live there. That is so cool.
1: It's funny you say that because he doesn't paint at all. He's actually a sculpture (laughs) artist. He's making some amazing sculptural works in the public space and Mm -hmm. also smaller sculptures that are for sale and experimental
0: yep he shares his story about his transition to full-time artist as well which is really cool and his perspective on why he creates and how he manages the business side of things so really lots of things to take away here
1: yeah and if you haven't already shared our episodes with a friend another country creative please do that
2: yeah get on it
1: let's jump into it g'day andre thanks for joining us
2: a pleasure and nice to be in the cave with you too. I know. woo!
1: Our number one fan, I think, Andre. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll definitely give you that spot,
2: 100%. <laughs> I love it it's been great listening to you as a podcast, someone who loves podcasts and I listen to a lot of podcasts every day. I've thought this is a great one and I'm really excited to be on it. Yeah,
1: nice. <clears throat> we love it because I get a text from Andre every second episode or so. Oh, yeah, that... Thing that you said, or it's so
0: important to know what lands, what is actually valuable, what's good listening. Does have you ever got one
1: that says, uh, "Reese, that was a bit, that was a bit dodgy." He has said our audio quality for one of the episodes. Oh, you better check that one, right? Yeah, good, good. So it's good to have someone on the ground uh, yeah, listening in. To, at least we've got one listener. <laughs> That's the most important thing, I think. Well,
2: uh, I reckon we need to grow this podcast oh, a lot because I think All it right. should be going out to more places than it is.
1: Come oh, on, thanks, mate. Now. Your creative journey is a really interesting one and for a bit of background, we know each other through the incubator program that is hosted at the Emporium. We did that together and became mates through that. We live around the corner. I've done a bunch of visits to your studio and you've come to mine and you also know Caleb quite well just through the Emporium as well. Yep. I thought I'd jump into your creative practice and how it began because I know you've always been a creative person along the way, but you haven't always been done the creative things as a job and that's more of a recent endeavor. Can you tell me about your creative passions and how your professional job, how that has overlapped with your creative job in the past?
2: I've always been creative as you said, like even when I was a kid I loved making things, I always wanted to do something with my hands when I grew up. When people asked me what I wanted to do, it was like something with my hands, and that ended up being plumbing. Fell into plumbing, left school a bit early and had a plumbing apprenticeship, and then found myself specialising in roof plumbing in particular. And about 20 years ago, I just realised, I started using my offcuts of Colourbond to make artworks out of, so to layer them up and make these pictures that were suitable for outdoors. I had some exhibitions 20 years ago in Melbourne, and then had kids and life took over and I didn't really do much creatively until about eight or nine years ago and I was working next door to a steel fabrication company and I started to see all the materials they were throwing out and I thought, geez, you could probably do something with those and one thing led to another and I made something out of steel and when I made that, I realised that I think I'd found my thing and then slowly transitioned. I suppose I always wanted to be an artist but it took probably seven years of roof plumbing during the day and then maybe going down to four days a week plumbing and then three days and then two days and as opportunities arose it slowly transitioned to about 18 months ago when all of a sudden I didn't need to do roof plumbing anymore and it's it's my job now being an artist and it's pretty exciting.
1: Yeah that's an amazing transition to find yourself in to switching from the tradie kind of world into the art world. What was the first piece of art you made when you like decided that you were going to start to put a bit more energy into creative endeavours. Do you remember your first steel artwork? It came
2: about seven years ago. I was going to go away. I really had enough of plumbing and I just like came to a point where I was like, I need to get away for a week. And I was going to go away for a week and I'd booked some accommodation in Wilson's Prom but I thought the weather wasn't looking good so I just stayed home. And in that week, I just made stuff. I was just had this week after I'd just spent all my time in the studio and it suddenly clicked that this is what i meant to be doing and it was that point. It wasn't a piece... I suppose that first piece that I made that I spoke about when I found all those steel bits, I made a piece for this organisation I'm very passionate about in Melbourne called Lord Summer's Camp, and I made something for there, and that was the first piece that sort of kicked it all off. But, yeah, it was that week that I went... I need to be doing this and yeah.
0: What was that piece? Can you describe it? What did you make?
2: It's a it's a symbol. It's an interesting shape with some curves and some straight bits and I made that out of a whole bunch of old steel and it's really heavy and it's very cool. It's looking really great now. I saw it a couple of weeks ago and yeah, it was very it's very special. That that place, Lord Summer's Camp and Powerhouse, has been a big reason as to why I'm doing what I'm doing now the support from their early days and also the skills I've learnt from volunteering down there and building stuff um, has all helped shape what I'm doing now.
1: Would we recognize it as an Andre only piece if we were to see that now?
2: Uh, you might consider that I might have made it but it's not like uniquely mine, I suppose some of my more known pieces like the pods that I make are getting known for this sort of this pod like sculpture series that I make in all different versions but that's probably what I'm more known for.
1: Yeah can you describe for us for considering we're on a podcast (laughs) what a pod is?
2: Pods is like a teardrop a teardrop shape that you find in nature a lot in seed pods and it's really organic shape. I've sort of I got a book of biology and even some of the small amoeba like these microscopic things I've realised have this shape so it's a very natural sort of shape three-dimensional you see through so with holes in them so you can they're quite heavy but you can also see through them and they do take very different forms different materials i've just made one the last couple of weeks and i've clad it in copper so i've started using some copper most of my sculpture is made of metal and mostly recycled i'm pretty passionate about using recycled materials i suppose i've always liked fixing things rather than throwing something out i'm very good at oh I can fix that, I can fix that handle, or and reusing stuff. A lot of my earlier work was made up of components that I found rather than now I'm getting a lot of raw metal and manipulating that raw metal, which is still waste, but with machinery and different methods to create my artwork out of.
0: Very cool. I love just getting to know you over the last couple of years, year and a half or whatever it has been. I've loved just hearing and seeing what you've been creating and the passion that you have for doing it, but the just the down to earth kind of attitude you've got about it. What, could you sum up what drives your creative endeavor? Is there anything that you could say, this is like my mission or my purpose or anything that you go, this is what I want to contribute?
2: I just feel compelled to make stuff and I think the fact that I've got myself in a position where I can just make whatever I want and I can just have an idea, I'll be in the middle of one sculpture and have an idea and go, oh, I'm just going to go try that and then three hours later I've gone down this little, little rabbit hole of exploring that idea, I think the fact that my three children have are grown up and have left home and I don't really have a mortgage anymore and because I don't go anywhere or do anything, I just want to stay home and make stuff. I don't have a huge cost of living. I spend a bit of money on materials and machinery but I've got this space now. I'm doing what I've always wanted to do and I can do it and I think like I'm 50, 51 now and I know that my time is limited and I just want to make the most of every minute that I can to make this work. So I feel like if I had started with this material twenty years ago, how far ahead I'd be now. But uh, yeah. probably only got twenty I've probably only got twenty or twenty five good years left to make stuff and I think that's that's quite limiting in some ways. <laughs> although quite yeah. exciting that I'm just doing as much as I can while I can.
0: Yep. Your work has been featured a lot of places. How do you feel when you see your work, for example, I know you did a piece for in that was featured on Kenny Res. Yeah. How do you feel when you see your work in the public domain and being experienced by others?
1: Before you answer that though, can you describe to us what that Kennington Res piece was and is, because that was a pretty exciting and experimental project. If you can explain what that looked like, and then maybe the feeling of seeing that in nature.
2: There was an opportunity with council that they wanted to activate Kennington Reservoir, a public park and reservoir in town, and it was a theme of kinetic artwork, and it was very applicable to me because I love making things that move and the wind moves, so I put in a proposal to have a floating piece that was floating in the middle of Kennington Reservoir which is quite a large reservoir so I needed a fairly substantial piece so it wouldn't get lost and I'd never really made anything that floated before so I (laughs) know a guy who who deals with gas tanks so I went and got four I think 80 litre gas tanks and sort of welded some brackets on and made a platform and then it wasn't quite stable enough so I got another four so it was like looked like a space shuttle by the time I finished (laughs) with it but then it had. I used a lot of clothes dryer drums in my artwork, like the silver material, and so I had all these end pieces left that are about as big as a manhole cover, and they're shiny. So I just attached them, about 30 of those, to pieces of old Rio, like steel Rio bar, and different lengths. So it was all these sort of big discs mounted on the ends of these two to four metre bars that were attached to this floating sculpture that was anchored to the bottom but it could move around a bit and this thing just floated around and, and yeah it shone and was quite visually pleasing. <laughs> the public didn't quite know what to make of it sometimes I, I did hang around and get some, a bit of feedback that, uh, but it was more about getting the public out into public spaces and to get them exercising maybe and that's one, one thing that art can do it can activate spaces and get people out and I suppose I get a great sense of satisfaction seeing my work out In public, that was just a temporary piece. I was only there for a month, which is a bit of a shame. But I do have some permanent public sculptures and knowing that they're going to be there for a long time is really hugely satisfying for me. That's sort of why you make art is to have people see it and experience it and interact with it, engage with it. So, yeah, it's it's very cool to, to have my work out there.
1: I had the privilege of coming over to your place and watching you build the temporary piece. And it started off with your four drums at the bottom, but then these huge three or four metre high spikes with the things on there. And it looked huge. Like when you're standing next to it, it was like massive. Like, God, is that going to float? And anyway, it floated, but you had to add some more stabilisation. So it turned into eight tanks and then it just turned into this huge thing. But then when you put it out in the lake, it really didn't look as big as we thought, like as what we thought it would look when you're standing right next to it. The size of the lake made the sculpture look really quite uh, nowhere near as imposing but it was interesting and I think I like that idea of like all of the artwork installations there – Did anyone know what to make of any of them? They were all quite experimental and interesting and unique, but what was the feedback specifically on yours? Well, a
2: lot of people appreciated it, but then you do get the element in society who said, am I paying for that? Am I tax dollars paying for that? (laughs) I said, yes, but you're supporting local artists. And I suppose when I spoke to them about (laughs) what it did for, there's not a lot of opportunities locally for for artists, and I think I talked a couple of them around that uh, changed their perspective on it. But I keep getting feedback even now, almost a year on, people go, oh, that that was great, that piece. It certainly caught people's eye and left good memories.
1: Yeah, that's cool. And you started talking about your pieces that are there for a longer amount of time. I know you've won some permanent commissions. Can you tell us about The Shimmering Tree and how that came about and what that is?
2: There was an exhibition down in Sale in Gippsland. It was the first year of the Victoria Sculpture Prize and it's a long way to go to Sale, so I thought, if I'm going to go down there, I want to make something that may compete for the prize. A few months before that, my mum suddenly died and it was a real shock to us. And so I thought about making something with her in mind and I suppose I'd been making these sort of shimmering, Things with lots of little reflective discs that just hang and, and shimmer in the wind. And <laughs> I must be like a, a part bird or part budgie. I just like these things that, uh, that are reflective and shimmer. I don't know, some sort of fascination I have with things it's like letting things move if they can move. So I made this beautiful five metre tall tree and it had 1,200 of these uh small stainless steel disc. which you actually came around and helped me. I did uh, too, I helped
1: <laughs> you grind some of those back.
2: Helped me shape them and they were all hanging in clusters and so I hadn't seen the tree go together until I got there and assembled it and put it together and it was amazing and it actually won it won the prize which was just sensational, quite a turning point in my career. So that's been acquired by the Wellington Shire Council and it's permanently located in their botanical gardens in Sale, in the sensory gardens, because I knew that it was going to visually shimmer but I didn't realise the sound it was going to make when the wind blew through it and it was this beautiful tinkling sound. So these things were hanging in clusters of about 12 and as the wind blew through it, yeah, this really calming sound came. So that was an added bonus and it sits beautifully in the sensory garden there.
1: I think the other discoveries that were made about that piece were like when it rains, it makes a different noise again. Or yeah. when there's a hurricane, it makes a different <laughs> yeah, noise. Yeah, well, let's hope it, yeah. It's still standing, <laughs> so that's good. <laughs>
2: and my mum's name was Penny, and oh, wow. I called it the shimmering penny tree because they were oh, wow. penny-shaped this. And yeah. so it was really – it's beautiful. a lovely uh, memorial for her. So that's – in some ways, it's, it's uh, my little tribute to my mum which mm. will be there forever, which is awesome. That's pretty beautiful. Wow, so if
0: you're a – what do you call someone who's from SAIL? sail a sailor? A sa- <laughs> <laughs> Somehow I don't think so. No, uh, <laughs> a SAILIAN. <laughs> <laughs> for all those SAILIANS <laughs> hanging yeah. out there, you have now listened to the creator of the Shimmering Penny Tree. <laughs> I can't wait to get down there and have a look at it myself.
1: Yeah, I like the... Something that I take away from that project and your kind of progression as an artist was maybe that was one of the pieces where you just sunk a lot of your own money into it and you invested in your own practice. So I want to just hear a little bit more about that and I know you had a really good motivation to do that for your mother. Has that sort of given you more confidence to do that in other pieces and follow your own creative visions a bit more?
2: Yes, certainly, Reece. Uh I suppose that was a... F- probably one of the first sculptures I've invested thousands of dollars in it was it probably cost me three and a half thousand to make plus the three or four weeks of time and I have made a couple of pieces that I've invested quite a bit of money in and time and not sold so that's the thing about being being an artist you might be in the creative industries and if you do something like you Caleb you've got a business where you get paid for the for your work Pretty much all the time. Whereas, I suppose, some visual artists or other creatives, they can do a lot of work and not get paid for it. But some of these pieces that haven't sold, I love anyway and I'm happy to live with. And and some of them sell, like, occasionally, when you're not expecting it. But, yeah, it has given me confidence. And since then, I've put some good money into some other pieces and backed myself. And, yeah, you can't get materials cost. And sometimes you can't get that for nothing. So you've got to invest in in that and also investing in machinery like buying buy new cool machines that let me do something else is also fun and yeah an investment in my practice 100 percent. everyone loves good gear
1: yeah i know your film gear oh I boy. paint guns film gear lights don't the even get me started <laughs> do you have any tips for people who are making stuff off their own back following their own creative vision to make stuff like how you might decide when to invest in something versus when to either wait for the client to come along or have you got a formula for when to take that risk or is it just an intuitive thing?
2: I don't have a formula for anything I do really. I don't really know what I'm... I know what I'm doing for the next couple of months but I don't really know what I'm doing after that. So things will take their course but I suppose it depends on where you are as an artist and why you're doing it. Are you making stuff to sell or are you making stuff because you're want to explore an idea and you don't really care if it sells I think that's probably the best way is just to some people make things to sell like they want to make up a bunch of things with horseshoes or with things to take to the local market and to sell and that's there is a space for that and I suppose that's a different market you've got to find but uh, I think if you're making stuff to sell it changes what you make like I, I make things and with maybe an idea that they might sell but it's not really why I'm making them. I've got a lot of I've got a lot of orders at the moment for some of the birds I've made. I've been making some of our local birds in the last couple of years and I've, I've made a lot and I've sold a lot of them, but I've got orders for another 20 of them, but I I'm just not getting to them. I'm getting distracted by other projects and by just ideas that I haven't done before and it's not a, I'm not a great businessman in that way whereas I've got I've got all this income sitting there for I know that when I make one of these and make it available, it'll sell. But I tend to move on quickly into other things and to keep pushing myself into other areas, and that's yeah, that's what I like to do.
0: Man, there's something in that, I reckon. Dive into the balance that you have to have as an artist of your motivation and what fulfills you creatively. I know Reese and I have talked a little bit about potential burnout and losing the passion for what you do. And that can often come from uh, changing the reason why you're doing something and making it only for a kind of a pretty shallow reason in terms of money. It's something that we all need, but not really a great purpose in and of itself and as an artist I can see you know, I don't have that the same challenge but I can see in artists that there is something that attracts people to buy something from an artist that came from inside them and it was a part that was uniquely their creation and their interpretation of the world or their their vision and that if you made that piece just to sell it that you'd lose that a little bit. Do you feel like that's a thing and do you f-
2: struggle keeping a balance with what uh, you'd make? Balance is, is a real thing. I think before I went full time as an artist, I was probably doing one day a week making downpipes, right? So I'd make up a couple of sets of downpipes at night, go and install them the next day. It's about a day a week and that probably provided me with all the money that I needed and I could go back and do that now. In some ways it would be so much easier to do that now and then I could do that and that's my money for the week and I can do what I want, right? But... Yeah, there is a real balance between keeping an income. I'm, I by no means have a regular income. Like I'm doing a couple of projects now with the quite significant projects, so I'm using that as knowing that in six weeks' time, I'm going to get a fairly big payment. I probably won't earn anything for the next six weeks in anticipation of that. I've sold a piece that I'm probably not going to install till October, and it's a pretty big one. But, So I've got to wear all that until then. And so I'm just very lucky that I am quite financially stable and I have a lot of backing, but it would be so much different if I had young kids and a mortgage and a family to look after. I'd find it. I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing now. I'd be doing more of those birds and making sure that I provided the more regular income. And I can see why artists have struggled with that over the years because if you're just driven to create... And sometimes those aren't commercially viable, but you feel very rich personally and emotionally, but maybe not financially.
1: I can totally imagine you going back into making downpipes, but like with a creative twist. (laughs) So So they're not just a straight (laughs) up and down downpipe. It's a kinetic downpipe with a little window so you can see the water and then it takes a left-hand turn. What's going on, Andreas?
2: Man, how cool does it look?
1: (laughs) Why are you charging me... $5,000 Five thousand dollars for this one downpipe <laughs>
2: because it's art. <laughs>
0: hey,
2: look, maybe there's an opportunity there, Andre. <laughs> That's great. Oh, downpipe. Yeah. Well, yeah, I can just say it. I think I'm. I think you've given me inspiration for a new series. Yeah, I think that could really speak
0: to your creative story, your journey. It's from downpipes to what's something that starts with D. alliteration. <laughs> yeah. Um,
2: <laughs> destiny. Down <laughs> Damn. from
0: downpipes to destiny. I love that.
1: Next time I come around for a studio visit, I want to see one of these downpipes yeah. installed on your house first. Yeah. No worries. <laughs> yeah. uh, that's so fantastic. Good. Talking about like your work is inspired a lot by the environment and you're talking about these seed pods and birds and it's all got this very environmental and organic kind of nature to it can you tell me a little bit about how the space you work in and this maybe links back to us being about the country creatives like I can't imagine you working in the city and creating the work that you do now so let us know a little bit about where you work because it's absolutely beautiful and then how that influences your work so
2: I live about 10 minutes from the center of Bendigo here but you'd never know it when you're out there we're in this street that's surrounded by a national park so in front of us and behind us is a national park and we're just in the middle of the Australian bush in this box iron bark forest which is just a beautiful a beautiful environment we've got lots of insects snakes we've got lots of birds and kangaroos and reptiles and I just I've always loved nature and now that I'm surrounded by it, like I've been there 15 years now. I just get a lot of satisfaction out of out of being being there. I go for a walk every morning, do a 5K walk through the bush in the morning, listen to podcasts, that's where I sort of listen yeah. to you guys most times. <laughs> nice. But yeah, I'm just fascinated by the natural world and love watching all the creatures and being surrounded by them and get inspired by them. Recently I made a little series of our insects uh, I make these kinetic trees that are based on some of the grasses and some of the trees we have. So I suppose you you are influenced by your environment. And because I live and work surrounded by bush, I think you're right. I can't imagine what it would make if I was in a city. It'd probably be something more sort of architectural, I suppose, because I love architecture. But you're right, yeah, just inspired by everything that surrounds me. Sometimes we have like little bats flying around our living room, like little micro bats, so we're <laughs> oh, certainly wow. in amongst it.
1: Yeah, it's really just sunken into the bush scape. It's amazing. And every time I go to a stu- for a studio visit at your place, it's, oh, quick, come down. There's The uh, the possums have just had babies and let's go and have a look at them. Or, <laughs> oh, was man, it sugar gliders? Sugar
2: gliders, oh, yeah. Oh. Made some oh, nesting God. boxes. We've got a couple of tawny frogmouths that live in a tree just outside my studio. And that's one of my... That's one of my things in the morning. Go out, see if they're around, try and find them. This little game, spot wow. the tawnies and we give them names. It's Tim and Tam, and then they've had <laughs> babies over the years. and oh, wow. We just become really – just I find it so wonderful that this amazing creature just like likes hanging out with me. I love that.
1: Yeah. It's and, super cool. It's really like a couple of metres away from the back door of your studio. It's pretty amazing. And the other thing I really like about being out there is – your obsession with moving sculptures and pieces. There's these like these wind chimes where you put a little bit of bird feed in one end and as the parrot lands, it moves and it dings a bell and they love it. they sort of play on it, yeah. Yeah. But you hear this ding <laughs> and then your ears peek up and it goes, Look, there's a so-and-so bird that's like it's amazing <laughs> that so you cool. attract them in closer and they interact with your sculptures too.
2: Yeah, and that sort of led to me making I think parts of my sculpture with maybe a bird perch on it. So when a bird lands on it, as they do when they're sort of fossicking around, they'll just land on it and just make it move. That's like cool. some, some t- like rods with a little shiny thing on the top that the birds will land on and interact with. And a lot of my sculptures do. Um, the birds will maybe come and fly inside them or use them as a little bit of shelter as they go about their day. My partner Bridget is an amazing photographer and she started taking photos of the local birds. She's getting really good She's also done quite a – she's taken a lot of photos of birds on my sculptures. Cool. We had an exhibition a year and I a half ago that. and it was just fantastic that her photos could be of the birds but of my sculpture and it's a really interesting collaboration. Love that. But, yeah, she's amazing. She's been a big inspiration to me when making my series of birds came from seeing her photos of these little birds that are so beautiful but you don't see a lot of their character – with a naked eye, like in real life, until someone catches them in a pose that's just really cool or really cute or really silly. They do some really funny behaviours and so yeah, it's been a big inspiration for me.
1: Yeah, it's really great to see the way that your sculptures interact in the environment and the way that birds land on them or I've even seen lizards, I think, pictures of lizards on your yeah. sculptures and it feels like that's really fitting for your work and what you do.
2: So you did mention like my love of things that move and a lot of my earlier work was quite interactive. So you'd wind a handle and something would turn and make a noise like a little chime or you'd turn something and make a wave motion. So I'm still very interested in that sort of concept. It takes a lot, of, lot more time to make things move but then... I sort of moved into yeah, these more kinetic sculptures. I started playing around with how do I let these things move and I've used springs, like a shiny thing attached to a spring in the wind and it moves in a certain way and that sort of evolved into the things like the shimmering penny tree where the, it's very simple, like a disc is just hanging and I think that's where I'm at at the moment is uh, I think there's a, real, there's a real lot of opportunities for me Uh, in public art, I think, for that sort of thing. So, yeah.
0: That was one of the things I was going to ask next As someone, a full-time artist and a sculptor, where do you see the opportunities for not only yourself but other artists and sculptors? Where do you see opportunities in the future?
2: I think there's been quite a resurgence in sculpture. I'm not sure if that's because of social media because sculpture is quite visually pleasing and it's not like a two-dimensional... Print or a painting that hangs on a wall. There's more and more sculpture is getting itself in the public realm, but it's also getting very competitive. And there's lots of very experienced sculptors and even companies who are applying for public art opportunities. For, for me to try and break my way in there, it, it can be difficult and then competitive. And I, last year, I spent quite a lot of time applying for these opportunities. And Reese and I even went in on one. We're thinking about maybe doing something together with. Reese may be overseeing the project and me being the sort of artistic director, but they're very competitive and they take a lot of time and energy to apply for so I'm also quite limited as to what I can make at my place, so I'm still f- finding my place and I'm really excited about what's happening. I'm doing all sorts of different projects at the moment. Some are big, some are really small and yeah, I'm excited to see where it goes. I don't know where it's all going, but you know, ideally I'd love to be making big bits of public art and... Mm. Maybe outsourcing a lot of the fabrication. So, just a lot of the top artists don't make their own sculpture. They have the name and the experience and they make a little maquette and they give it to a fabrication company and they make the sculpture and don't get really any credit for it. It's all, and that's, I think a lot of our top sculptors don't really. Make it. It's their artwork. They design Design. it and they have all the contacts and the experience and the, yeah.
1: It is a team effort at that scale because, and in the public realm, you've got engineering. It can't fall on someone. You can't get your head stuck in a section of it. Like it has to go through (laughs) some pretty strict protocols. Yeah,
2: and that also shapes what is and what isn't possible. Sometimes you have to really modify what you want to do to make it comply with safety regulations. Yeah, I never would have thought about that element of it.
1: Yeah, it's quite detailed. I think you might be a bit ahead of the curve on your interest in making things move and interacting with art because I know people who consume art, it used to be about stand back, look at the thing and just visually uh, enjoy it but now people expect to interact with that. They kind of expect it to be an experience and we're moving to experiences over just like passively absorbing something.
0: Yeah, in line with the move to more authenticity and realness in that something has to be part of our environment and our world in a deeper way than just the one-dimensional visual experience, which can be great, but... I think you're right. People are looking for something. If it's going to be in the environment, it needs to have more to it and it needs to have
2: function. It's it's interesting because I think what might lend itself to that more is like temporary installations, which don't have to be so robust materially. And like, it was interesting because uh, Bendigo have just put out a public art survey and I noticed in there that they quite a few of the examples that they listed as public art have been... Temporary installations like the Marilyn Monroe statue, yep. the House of Mirrors, which was here for like a month, which is an experience like you pay money to go in there and experience this yeah. thing that's there for a month. Now, I suppose like, I wouldn't have considered that House of Mirrors as yeah. being public art. It's more an experience, but maybe it is public
1: art. Yeah. The lines are getting more blurry. Public art and experience is like <clears throat> the art of creating an experience mm. is a thing in itself. Yeah.
2: Yeah. 100%. It can be a performance. Yeah. Is, yeah. Yeah. If it's
1: in the public sphere. I think it's good that they're consulting different layers of the community and hopefully we get a bit more say in there. And it's interesting – you don't really have any permanent um, sculptures in Bendigo. You're, they're all scattered around Victoria for the most part. You, you probably have more work shown out of Bendigo than in Bendigo. Is that right?
2: Yeah, I've got a couple of smaller pieces at like a kindergarten and a school. That's right. But nice. nothing, like, there's not many opportunities for public art in Bendigo. I think that's what this public art policy is working on, so looking forward to that.
1: It's interesting... I think somewhere like Ballarat, for example, their gallery's business model is promote our local artists and use that to draw tourism through our supporting our own local scene. I've
2: been to a couple of exhibitions at Ballarat, and they have a really top end show, but then also have a sh- have a couple of rooms with their local artists there. So that mm. when people come and have a look, then they get exposed to the locals, mm. which that's something. Like with the redevelopment of the Bendigo Art Gallery, um. I'm hoping to see if they'll consider having a small space for locals in that redevelopment that they can show a local artist once a month and give them that opportunity to show in a world-class gallery. So yeah. we'll watch this space. We'll see yeah. how we go. Yeah, we will. I think the Benigo Art Gallery are fantastic at what they do. They put on an amazing array of internationally successful shows. I've had an exhibition at Dudley House, which is two doors up from there, and it was during one of their big shows. But really, really hard to get people 100 metres up the road. Wow. It's just really not easy for your local artist to get to take advantage of those crowds.
1: I think Andre might be the right person to be in the room for this, is to Ooh. start a bit of a, a collective and create a space where we're like a contemporary yeah. gallery somewhere between the train station and the Bendigo Gallery. and just cutting off the streets and direct traffic and <laughs> put up fake signs like with a little bit of fine print and draw them into our gallery it's great oh,
0: i love it you yeah you've got to start somewhere and if it's dishonesty no i'm joking i'm joking i think
1: that might be the street art uh, kind of guerrilla marketing <laughs> yes, side of me coming out yeah. totally
0: no but yeah no i see the opportunity it's just waiting there for someone to go i'm going to do something about this
1: and a fun fact this uh bendigo public art strategy pretty much can be like there was a lot of chat about it in the creative scene, there's a lot of people who've had a lot of different chats, but I think Andre, he was the straw that broke the camel's back. Really? And that is what I've heard, that it was pretty much his phone call. He said to me, like, can we start a thing and get it happening? I said, oh, I feel like I have been already and this is where I I'm going to call the mayor. And he did. Did you call the mayor? Well,
2: actually, after I won the sculpture prize, I came home, I was really buzzing about, oh man, I'm going to be doing public art. What's what's happening in Bendigo? So I just I just sent the mayor, sent her an email and thought, "Wonderful, wonder if I'll ever hear back from her. And about 20 minutes later, my phone rang. And she said, hi, Andre, it's Andrea here. I went, oh. what? The mayor called <laughs> That was quick. What are um, you doing calling me? So she had just recently become the mayor. And I just said, look, what's, this is what's happened. I'm just wondering what's happening with public art opportunities. And she said, oh, let me ask some questions. So she found out that they... Didn't have a public art strategy, and so she said, "We're going to get something going." But I think it's going to yeah, it'll probably be two or three year yeah thing. But if that can help get some public art into Bendigo, then um, yeah, I'm going to be I'm, I'll be helping push push for that
1: had me a little bit worried because the the lack of a public art policy, kind of <laughs> yeah. me as a business, I could just do whatever <laughs> so I could make things happen that I'm like, oh, God, is a policy going to box me in here? Is this going to be bad for business? But no, I think overall it'll be a really great thing. So, 100%. And good on you, Andre, for just like taking a bit of initiative and making it happen. I think if all of the creative communities in regional areas just – made it more vocal that they care about this stuff. The thing about sport, footy and cricket and netball, they're really passionate and they tell everyone about it and they campaign to make things happen for new venues and upgrades and sponsors. And, like, where's our artist community? We're all too, what, polite and shy and don't want to stand behind our work to get it out there.
2: Oh, I think, yeah, a lot of people might be too scared to ask a question but I just what's the worst that can happen I'm always one to ask a question and if you don't ask you don't get and a few things have happened recently that have been a really great outcome from just like sending an email or asking a question and it's always a good way to as an artist I've always had to push my own barrow I've always had to self-promote that's a big part of it yeah you know very rare that someone is out there who's going to go oh I'm gonna I'm gonna promote you and (laughs) your. it's a lot of self-promotion has got me where I am and, yeah, that's something you got to do. Oh,
1: I think that's just a, an absolute takeaway, isn't it? You yeah. can't just wait for other people to discover you and praise you. you got to go out there and get it.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's a part of communication and it's an undervalued skill I, I see from an outsider's kind of perspective on artists is a lack of understanding of the power of effective communication and if you can learn to connect what you do and your thing with what someone else values it's just about that connection so finding and actually being active in finding where the opportunities are and connecting with people not from a sales or not from a you need to care about me perspective but how can i contribute what i've got which is super cool, to what you're doing and what opportunities you have available. And there's, that's where connections happen. And I'm sure that's what you've found, right?
2: Yeah, for sure. And also picking up on what you said there, I think I've got better at, at my communication around sales as well. I think that is an important part of it. When, someone, when you're talking to someone who's interested in some of your work, I've learned to actually value my work and... I used to see it as, I, I considered my work expensive. Yeah. And,
1: <laughs> and then I'd tell you, dude, that's cheap.
2: Leah from the Emporium sort of challenged my assumptions on that and she said, why are you calling it expensive? I went, oh, I am, aren't I? Like, I shouldn't be doing that. <laughs> no, not mm. at all. Very
0: rarely is a decision made on price. Like the first piece of art I ever bought, me and my wife bought, it. we had an emotional connection with this painting and it was $5,000 and that was $5,000 more than we had, <laughs> but we ended up making a way to buy it, and it took us a while to pay it off, I can tell you now, but if the gallery owner had come to us and just started talking price with us, it could, have, it could not have panned out the way it did, but because we had that connection to it, that's what mattered. And the money's just a—that's just a, a like a process, a logistics thing. You better
2: come around to my place. <laughs> <laughs> You've got plenty of things for that price, much cheaper than that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> hey, yo, yeah.
1: we've mentioned the Emporium in like a couple of times, and that's how we met was through the incubator program. And I was wanting to ask to bring it back to business—the business of being a creative—as we wrap up the episode. What do you think, as a sculptor, someone who's pursuing their own creative endeavours what are the business skills that you've injected to make that more sustainable and more successful is it possible for you to distill that down to a couple of shifts in mentality we've just mentioned valuing your own work are there any others
2: the business side of it for me is it takes the fun out of or it takes the pleasure it's not the part i think creatives are good at I've got a company, I've got a like a proprietary limited company that I've shifted over from my roofing business to my art practice and I'm paying my superannuation and insurances and my quarterly PAYG and BAS and all of a sudden every quarter I get this, these bills that I have to pay and it just takes away the, yeah, it's a real shame that happens but I, it's the best way to do it because then you're not... Mm you know. mean
1: paying taxes, that is a real shame. <laughs> I think everyone feels that. Yeah, but I, I think
2: before, and I've also changed accountants, so before this I would just do what I do during the year and give all my numbers to the accountant at the end of the year and he'd tell me what I owed and that's what I was used to. But now that's coming in every quarter, it's like I'm making it more real that mm. I've got to find four or $5,000 every quarter and that makes it more real that, okay, I do have to... I can't just keep going off on these tangents and playing around with exploring copper for a couple of weeks and making chess pieces and yeah. doing this and that. I do have to. I do have to make an income, yeah. uh, so that m- brings it back to reality. Whereas when I was doing it part time, I'd I'd earn all that money making down pipes, which didn't take any of my passion or any of my my creativity to make money. I could do that and earn money, and then just. Do I want to do so? It's made it more real mm. now than it's a business. And I think, yeah, I think I'm seeing it more as a business and more as having to be sustainable over, over years. It sounds like a bit of a resentful thing, though. Is that what
0: you feel towards having to make money?
2: I, th- I think maybe... If things keep going well, I won't worry about it so much. But I have this I have this balance in my account, the bank balance, that I like to stick to. Yeah. And it's quite it's quite quite a bit of money in there. So it's not like I'm down on my last cent, but I have this thing that I don't want it to go below this thing. And when it starts to go below there, I go, I have to get it above there. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's just yeah. like a personal and it's probably yeah. it's something I shouldn't worry about. And maybe if in the next twelve months it still hovers around there or it goes up. Then I become comfortable and just realise that it's all going to be okay. But I don't know where my next dollar is coming from and my next sale half the time. Look, I don't proactively go out there and try and sell stuff. If you see my socials, I just show what I do. I don't actually try and sell stuff, which I think it's taken, the sales have taken care of themselves over the years and commission work sort of be. does that. But it's still, yeah, I think I've got a fair way to go learning how to become comfortable with the, with the financial side and letting it go down 10 grand and then knowing that it might go up again but
1: who knows hmm. yeah that's a tricky one to balance out have you thought about utilising other people who are maybe more into sales or setting up websites or doing those things that you present as a way to or you just look at that as another expense rather well, than an opportunity to elevate your product I don't
2: I'm thinking about making a little online store that's what I did during the pandemic and it worked really well and then I can just put up pieces onto my store and just direct people to that so I think that's the answer to that because I don't have five of these things to sell and I made this little series of insects over a couple of weeks and so many people wanted to buy them but I wasn't I didn't really want to sell them they were like oh no I just want to keep them together in this little collection (laughs) and then so I've got 10 little insects there that I know will sell one day when I want to sell them so I think I'll be having an open studio at the end of October, a Bendigo open studio so I think I might use that as a bit of a Chance to have some work for sale. But I think before that, I think I'm going to make a little online store just so when I get inquiries and because people, I think people want to buy my work, but I just don't provide that many opportunities for people to buy them. I don't have my work in galleries. Mm. At the moment, galleries take 40% and mm. I just think at the moment I'm happy to uh, earn what I earn and maybe look towards having an open studio in October and that might be a good time. Yeah, I love it. You I you're probably unintentionally
0: creating a bit of a exclusivity yeah. and more of a draw card to your your work. As you talk, I'm like, Man, I can't get it. I want it. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah. Supply
1: and demand. How do I get it? He doesn't even have a shop. You gotta be the first person to post is this for sale on an yes. Instagram post to yes. make to get yes. the work. I love <laughs>
0: that. It's super cool, but I love hearing different perspectives, especially when it comes to business side of things, because it's not all about making money. And mm. There if you're able to find a really good sweet spot where you know that you're being creatively fulfilled and I love that, that you're making things that you're like, oh, I, I actually really love these and I don't actually <laughs> yeah. want to exchange money for them, I'd rather they have the thing. Well, so that's I, pretty
2: cool. I think it's more about like keeping these like ten little insects together. I probably won't ever make any insects again. Right. I've got this little collection that maybe when I have an exhibition that they'll be really cool to show. They'll be yeah. great, they'll be great together. Yeah, and I want to. I think with these new things, I need to live with them for a bit and have my little bit of. Ownership of them and then let them go when the times.
1: What do you call it? A marquette, like a miniature version of something. Yes. They're all just marquettes for the bigger public pieces. Yeah. 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 I like. He's an ideas
2: man.
0: (laughs) Yes, I can see. I don't know what these insects look like, but I just get a flashback of the the brass ball in Pamplona, and except
2: it's like a brass grasshopper.
0: Oh yeah. Something in somewhere. I'd love
2: to see massive versions. Yeah, me too. Mm. Yeah, yeah. That'd be fun. You can see uh, a lot of my work on my Instagram if you would like to check that out.
0: Of course, Andre. That would be would have been our next question. You've mentioned a couple of things. I would be surprised if you don't have an influx of people at this open studio because I'm super keen. But where else? Give us some details of where people can find you and your work, online or in person.
2: So I suppose Instagram has been very good for me. i got a good following there and I'm fairly regular on putting up my newest work. So it's just Andre Sardoni Art. There's not many other Andre Sidonies out there, so you won't <laughs> have too many to choose from. On Facebook as well, the same. I've got a website, which is the same, com, And, yeah, I am I live in Manjarang. If you're ever in Bendigo and you want to come out and have a look, just get in touch with me. Give me a call if I'm home. You're more than welcome. I welcome anyone to come to drop in and check out what I do and where I am. And that's always nice to to, yeah, meet people who are interested in what I'm doing. And, yeah, October, Bendigo Open Studios. It'll be a three-day event with maybe 30 or 40 artists around Bendigo opening up their studios to the public. This will be the third year. I was on the committee for the first couple of years, so I helped initiate that, but I've uh, taken a back seat this year. And, uh, but, yeah, it's been a great thing to expose our local artists to the public. Very exciting. Andre, thank you
0: so much for jumping on Country Creatives. I feel that it is an honour for us to hear your story and record it and talk about the way you see your creative practice. I really appreciate it.
2: Thank you. And can I just say to all the listeners out there, you need to tell people about this podcast and (laughs) get them to listen to it. I've been telling these two guys that they need to... Do this promotional thing at the end of the podcast because I think it is called country creatives, but I think this is really great for any sort of creatives anywhere, city creatives. But let's get this podcast out to the wider audience. Love it. Yeah,
1: he's given me everywhere. You got to tell people to follow. <laughs> give your give us a five star rating. You're not selling it enough. Like, <laughs> thank you, Andre, for thank the shout out. And. Yeah. Thanks for being our number one supporter, Andre. We really love it.
2: Yeah, no, great. Look, I do listen to a lot of podcasts, and this is it's a great podcast. You guys are really good, and I, I hope it reaches all the creatives around the world because it's got the potential to.
0: Shout out to our growing American listenership. Yeah, I'm amazed. But what you said, Andre, reminded me of our friends in the Yankee land.
1: We actually have an Instagram page now. We do. Country underscore creatives.
0: Yeah, this is the episode that never ends. We keep thinking of things to say at the end. It's but Andre's fault. He told us
1: to, to promote ourselves. But I want to hear if there's people overseas. I want to know where they're from.
0: Okay, so our Instagram page, please jump on there and tell us. Where you're listening from. Where you're listening from. That'd be great.
1: Thanks again, Andre. We'll chat to you soon. Good on you.
0: Listening to Country Creatives Podcast, hosted by Rhys Hendy and Caleb Maxwell. It's produced by Amy Chapman with support from the Emporium Creative Hub in Mitchell Street, Bendigo. If you'd like to listen to any of our past episodes, you can visit us at EmporiumCreativeHub.com.au slash podcast. You can also contact the team there or find us on Instagram at Country Creatives. We have an episode for you every two weeks, so if you'd like to be the first in the know, please subscribe to Country Creatives wherever you listen to your podcasts.